Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm undergoing self-isolation. It's the only way to be. Just for the lack of stimulation. So come self-isolate with me. Well, it's a different kind of self-isolation this week, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've been coming to New Orleans, Louisiana for a while now and uh, made a movie about the event of 2005, the flood, most often called Katrina by those who haven't seen the movie. But it was not until this week that uh, I find to my surprise that I experienced my first in-person, live and in-person hurricane. Never been through one before. Been through a bunch of earthquakes, you know, good California boy. But my first, and my wife's first, hurricane. You want to do your hurricanes together. Take it from me. Um, so not only self-isolating, but uh, checking for candles and batteries and all that stuff, and, this, and the food you can eat that doesn't need to be cooked, all those things, talking to friends in the aftermath. You have power? Yeah, I went out for about four hours. Yeah, we, ours went out for three. You have the internet? No, no, they didn't. You have phone? Yeah, I got the phone. It was um, very dangerous for some. If you live in the neighborhoods in New Orleans where they blessed with this great canopy of live oak trees, they are a, a true gift to the city, except <laughs> during a hurricane. Because that's, that's one of those branches going to fall down in your house. You, you, you're in a heap of trouble. But uh, no such thing where in, in, in my little neck of the woods. So we're okay. Thank you very much for not even bothering to ask. But it is, yes, it is self-isolating. And so thoughts in preparation of this very special edition of the show, since uh, the radio station from which it normally originates is uh, a bit deprived of uh, certain facilities this week, certain, certain uh, abilities this week. So this is, this is coming pre-recorded from uh, another location. But anyway, um, it's uh, clearly the weekend before the big thing. This program will mainly be about other stuff, since I think the media is full of, you know, are the are the polls right this time? Can the polls be right this time? Because they weren't right last time, and this time is different, but the polls are the... Can I just say, ladies and gentlemen, I understand why politicians, political consultants people who run campaigns, polls are important to them because they have to figure out where they're going to spend their money. And uh, if you're polling badly in a state, you might want to pull your spending out of that state or you might want to increase it in that state. But anyway, it's, it's, it leads to some kind of action that you can perform. For the general public, nothing. What, what are you supposed to do with them? Okay, now we know our guy is going to win. So more likely to vote, less likely to vote. No difference. They fill a lot of time. 
and a lot of space in the, the so-called press. So um, they serve their purposes just fine. Mine, not so much. Anyway, so not a, not a lot about that. But thinking about this moment when it could be the culminate well, one, one way or the other, it's the culmination of the first term of <laughs> President Trump. And one's mind goes back, at least mine does, to early in, his, early in his term, first year, about his 100th day, and he did an interview with somebody. It might have been Fox, in which he confessed that he thought this job was going to be easier. He really didn't expect it to be like this. Really? Didn't read up on it. And uh, found to his surprise that he was no longer allowed to drive. Has to be driven or flown everywhere by somebody else. Can't just hop in the vehicle. Yeah, you learn something every five or ten years. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm at the top of the heap Like some kind of Yoda I push the red button Leroy brings me a soda You'd think I'd be happy There's gold rugs on the floor But the deal's gone crappy I can't drive anymore You know I accomplished so much By my 100th day At least that's what everyone On my staff gets to say I've ordered some bombing, very light on the gore. Even that wasn't calming. I can't drive anymore. Can't enjoy the thrill of my foot on the gas. Cruising up Madison, checking out some ass. Can't cruise down the FDR That's what my mind has worn Got to use Twitter Cause I can't honk the hell out of my horn To the chief Till it comes out of my ears I've settled my suits Got in front of my arrears I thought this would be easy When I walked through the door Who would have imagined I can't drive anymore No, I can't drive anymore From New Orleans, Louisiana, we're picking up the uh, the fronds and the branches and getting back to work sometime. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. 
listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. Well, not quite. You want to live fast? Die young? Eat microplastics. That's not a uh, trailer for a movie. That's an actual report. Microplastics can alter the behavior of fish. Oh, I should have said if you're a fish. Alter the behavior of fish, I say, with the fish that ingest the pollutants likely to be bolder, more active, and swim in risky areas where they die en masse. It's according to a new study shared with us by The Guardian. The survival risk posed by microplastics is also exacerbated, not exasperated, nor exaggerated, by degrading coral reefs. Dying corals make particularly younger fish more desperate to find nutrition and shelter and to venture into waters where they're more likely to be taken by predators. So we're not, don't, we don't root for the predator? Oh, in a joint study conducted by Australia's James Cook University, is that the captain? As well as University of Cambridge, marine ecologists pulse-fed groups of juvenile Ambon damselfish um, arrayed across several tanks, a diet of brine shrimp. Mm-mm. In addition to the shrimp, researchers added fine microplastics with a subtle roseate nose, including polystyrene spherical beads, about 200 microns, about six, uh, eight thousandths of an inch thick, into some of the tanks in an effort to simulate the diet- dietary choices fish encounter in the environment. Researchers found the microplastics were mostly eaten. The fish liked the food, or the cooking. After four days of feeding the tanks of fish differently, the researchers tagged the fish, and that's going to be fun, and then released them back into the waters they were originally taken from, as if nothing had happened. This is uh, on the northern part of Australia's once Great Barrier Reef. Fish were then placed by divers in different areas into live, healthy corals, as well as areas of degraded corals, you know, the Jeffrey Tubin corals, they're called now. The study published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Journal, not bees, B, as in letter B, found that the groups of fish that had eaten microplastics exhibited more active, bold, and risky behavior. As if they were auditioning for an action movie. All the fish that ate microplastics that were placed in areas of degraded corals were eaten by predators within 72 hours of release. The leader of the study told The Guardian the behavioral change and subsequent impact on their chance of survival was triggered because when fish ingest microplastics, they become full, or they feel full, but they haven't gotten the nutrition they expect and require. Not just a preference, it's a necessity. The gut is saying you're full, but their brain is saying you need nutrition, he says. Like humans, when we're very hungry, we might run across the road as opposed to walking across safely. For the fish who are hungry, they're more willing to take risks, and this means straying further from shelter for food where the predators are waiting for them. The researchers said most of the microplastic waste in Australian waters came from fast food-associated containers and paraphernalia, including bottles, which got flushed into the sea and broken down by agitation. Relax, you bottles. Calm down. And weather events into, quote, millions of pieces, Tom. Millions of pieces. That's right. And, speaking of bottles, bottle-fed babies, yes, them too, 
are swallowing millions of microplastic particles a day. This, according to research, described as a milestone in the understanding of human exposure to tiny plastics, in this case, tiny humans, too. Scientists found the recommended high-temperature process for sterilizing plastic bottles and preparing formula milk caused bottles to shed millions of microplastics and trillions of even smaller nanoplastics. They got a nanny, and they got the nanny plastics. Uh, nano. The polypropylene bottles tested make up 82% of the world market for, I guess, bottles. Uh, glass bottles being the main alternative. Polypropylene is one of the most commonly used plastics. Preliminary, preliminary, preliminary tests by the scientists found kettles and food containers also produced millions of microplastics per liter of liquid. Tom? Close. Microplastics in the environment were already known to contaminate human food and drink, but the study shows that food preparation in plastic containers can lead to exposure thousands of times higher. The health impacts are unknown, so don't worry about it. Go on with your bad self. The scientists say there is an urgent need to assess the issue, particularly for infants. You know what? Why don't the infant scientists worry about that? The team has also produced sterilization guidelines to reduce microplastic exposure. The team that did the research, which was done at Trinity College Dublin, says uh, the leader of the research, quote, we were absolutely gobsmacked, unquote, that's British for astonished, at the number of microplastics produced by the baby bottles. Baby bottles. A study last year by the, I had a friend from Brooklyn once, Baby bottles. Uh, a study last year by the World Health Organization, he's still a friend, uh, estimated adults would consume between 300 and 600 microplastics a day. Our average values, our average values, says uh, the professor at Trinity College Dublin, our average values were on the order of a million or millions of microplastics a day. So it's going up. That's good, right? Things going up, that's good. He added, we have to start doing the health studies to understand the implications. We're already working with colleagues to look at what buttons in the immune system these particles begin to press. Who knew we had immune system buttons? I thought they were zippers myself. He said many of the particles would simply be excreted, but further investigation was needed into how many could be absorbed into the bloodstream and travel to other parts of the body. Like the brain. I've already gotten rid of all those food containers I used to use, and if I had young children, I would modify how I prepare milk formula, the researcher said. The message is the precautionary principle, unquote. Him, talking to the wind, apparently. Just one word, microplastics. <clears throat> and now, ladies and gentlemen, let's, um, let's get to the meat as it were, of today's program, since the United States is totally obsessed with the upcoming election. And why, why shouldn't we be? But there is news about um, the pandemic that is spreading over the rest of the world as well as in this country. Uh, you may have heard already Britain is going to go through, Parliament willing, a one-month re-lockdown, pubs, Restaurants will close. Schools will still be open. What kind of cockeyed society is that? And um, people will be encouraged, if not required, to stay at home one more time. Hope they cleaned up before after the last lockdown, before this one starts, you know. 
because you'll be looking at that that dust moat for a while now. But that's just the tip of the COVID berg. There's a story from Imperial College London, middle of the week, saying that no, Donald Trump, <laughs> President Trump, isn't immune after all. Levels of protective antibodies in people, antibodies, I say, wane quite rapidly after the coronavirus infection, according to researchers. The uh, team found the number of people testing positive for antibodies has fallen by 26% between June and September. They say immunity appears to be fading, and there's talk of catching the virus multiple times, like the flu virus like the different flu viruses. The news comes as figures from the Office of National Statistics in Britain show that the number of COVID deaths in the UK rose by 60% in a week in middle of October. Now have been 60,000 deaths involving COVID-19 in the UK. But we know Donald Trump told us this week that a lot of doctors attribute all the deaths to COVID because they get paid more. Maybe not in Britain. In the first round of testing at the end of June and at the beginning of July, about 16,000 people had detectable antibodies. In the latest set of tests in September, only 44 per 1,000 people were positive. Suggests the number of people with antibodies fell by more than a quarter between summer and autumn. Quote, immunity is waning quite rapidly. We're only three months after our first round of tests, and we're already showing a 26% decline in antibodies, said one of the researchers. The fall was greater in those over 65, but they fall, no, sorry, compared with younger age groups and in those without symptoms compared with those with full-blown, pardon the expression, COVID-19. The number of healthcare workers with antibodies remained relatively high. Researchers suggest that may be due to the fact that they're regularly re-exposed to the virus. Exactly what the antibody drop means for immunity is still uncertain. Much like the future itself. Oh, but wait, there's more. Regeneron is a company, not a drug, contrary to what <laughs> President Trump told you. He, he was taking a drug cocktail from the good people at Regeneron. They have now stopped enrolling seriously ill COVID patients in a clinical trial of the antibody treatment that President Trump hailed as a cure. This according to the Financial Times. An independent data monitoring committee warned that the risks might outweigh the benefits for hospitalized patients who happen to be on high levels of oxygen because of the not-breathing thing. The move came after Eli Lilly, which is also developing an antibody treatment for COVID-19, stopped its trial in hospitalized patients earlier this week. It found this group was unlikely to benefit. It's kind of an anti-antibody week. Both companies have submitted applications for an emergency use authorization to the Food and Drug Administration in the United States for treating patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. That, we were told, was the category President (laughs) Trump fell into before he said how sick he was later. Dan Lucy, an infectious disease specialist at Georgetown University, said the regulator should convene a committee of external advisors before issuing an emergency use authorization. One has never been granted 
for a monoclonal antibody. Tom? The FDA needs to carefully examine the evidence on safety and whether the treatments actually work to avoid the appearance of replicating mistakes it made, issuing such emergency use authorizations for hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19, Dr. Lucy said, an infectious disease specialist at Georgetown. What would he know? The Regeneron trial will continue in outpatients and out inpatients, no, in outpatients and in hospitalized patients on low or no oxygen, suggesting any safety concerns are limited to the sickest participants. But since the drug is given via drip, it may be harder to distribute to less sick patients who are not in the hospital. So there's your little paradox right there. And I'm not talking about a couple of infectious disease specialists. But wait, there's more. There was mention moments ago of hydroxychloroquine. The Washington Post this week reported in detail on the efforts of a member of the Trump administration to keep pushing hydroxychloroquine. And he would be the uh, infectious disease specialist, Dr. No, he would be the member of the uh, task force on Dr. Burt, no. He would be the trade advisor, Peter Navarro. You know, Jared Kushner has proven that expertise is really transferable to anything, especially if it doesn't exist. Navarro wanted to make sure the administration's top vaccine expert would be on board with the White House plan to distribute hydroxychloroquine to hard-hit cities at the beginning of the pandemic. The first thing out of his mouth was, I want to know what team you're on said Rick Bright at the time he was responsible for stockpiling drugs for medical emergencies as he was the director of the Federal Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, the BARDA. Not the BART. You can't take it to Oakland. The BARDA. The immunologist Bright later filed a whistleblower complaint against the administration. So he's, you know, why would we believe him? He said in an interview with the Post that he told Navarro he was on the side of medical evidence. Navarro Bright said, replied, I won't hold it against you, but we need to move this forward. Navarro had no comment. The White House decided to set aside the mandatory safety controls put in place by the Food and Drug Administration, and that fueled one of the most disputed initiative in the response to the epidemic, the distribution of millions of ineffective and potentially dangerous pills from the strategic national stockpile. They've been stockpiling hydroxychloroquine. Claims about the uh, chemical to treat COVID-19 have gained traction despite a lack of scientific evidence. Over a span of four days in early April, the White House ordered the the distribution of 23 million hydroxy tablets from the stockpile to a dozen states, enough pills for one and a half million patients, according to public records obtained under the Freedom of Information Act because the information wasn't free before. The post-review of the uh, public records obtained under the Freedom of Information Act found that the process was marked by haphazard planning, little or no communication to local authorities about the flow of pills into their communities, and, just to top it off, a lack of public accounting about where the hydroxychloroquine pills 
ended up. Well, that sounds like a complete system right there. The documents also demonstrate the steps the administration took to bypass the FDA's authorization for emergency use of the tablets, which limited their use to hospitals and clinical drug trials. FDA guidance at the time was that state authorities were supposed to request supplies from the stockpile before they were delivered, but interviews and documents show that procedure wasn't followed in many cases. The White House ordered more than a third of the tablets sent to three major drug distributors in the United States with instructions to deliver them not only to hospitals, but also retail pharmacies in five U.S. cities, despite FDA, FDA controls to the contrary. One, mail, one major wholesaler said it shipped to long-term care facilities, which were also not covered in the FDA's authorization. All three distributors told the Washington Post they didn't distribute to retail pharmacies despite the administration's request. Health and Human Services, which oversees the stockpile, confirmed in an email to the Post the agency doesn't know where the pills ultimately ended up. The agency said that drugs were supposed to be used for patients with lupus who encountered shortages early in the pandemic. The emergency authorization was withdrawn in June after the FDA found hundreds of adverse events linked to hydroxychloroquine's use in COVID-19 patients, including dozens of deaths. In June, two months after the White House's urgent orders to ship the millions of doses, health officials told holders of the pills in a general notice they could destroy them. The whole thing, this is a quote, reeked of political pressure to get that stuff into state health systems. That's quoting Rick Bright, the guy who was at BARDA at the time before he became a whistleblower, adding, quote, there was no scientific reason or rationale. It was completely political, unquote. Navarro, the trade advisor, declined to discuss his role in leading the administration's push for hydroxychloroquine. Despite the FDA's revocation of its emergency use order, Navarro continues to insist the drug benefits patients in early stages of infection, both in the hospital and at home, as outpatients. Quoting the trade representative, trade advisor in the administration, quote, it's one of the great tragedies of this pandemic that the anti-Trump mainstream media demonized a cheap and effective medicine that could have saved tens of thousands of American lives. How that happened is the only story worth writing about. The rest is just political garbage, unquote. You may recall <laughs> President Trump said in May he was taking the drug as a preventive measure, but it didn't prevent him from getting COVID-19, and he didn't take it then when he got it. You see, Navarro was a relentless advocate for hydroxychloroquine in the administration, according to Olivia Troy, a former official who served on the staff of Vice President Pence and worked on the Coronavirus Task Force. She said Navarro became visibly irritated at times when other officials wouldn't share his enthusiasm for the drug. He would personally distribute articles and studies around the White House that supported use of hydroxy to treat COVID-19. Quote, he was really passionate about it. He was like, send it out to everyone. He was the number one backer of it. Unquote. We don't yet know why. Among the backers of the drug, in addition to Peter Navarro, was the president of Brazil, João Bolsonaro. He too 
came down with a case of COVID-19, despite hyping hydroxychloroquine as a preventative. Now this week, the Brazilian government introduced a new medicine for dealing with COVID-19, which they hyped at a press conference as uh, going to change the history of the pandemic. But uh, after four days of pressure from, you know, science guys, they actually presented the evidence. According to Science Magazine, what would they know? None of that impressed critics. The uh, main evidence for the new drug was a lower viral load. You know, Tom left... But uh, scientists say a lower viral viral load has little meaning if it doesn't make the patient feel better, and it's unlikely to reduce transmission of the disease 10 days after the onset of symptoms. Everyone who examined the data said this reduction in viral load doesn't have any clinical or epidemiological implications, said a retired medical sciences professor at the University of Campinas. Other researchers note that at that stage in a mild COVID case, the patient has already mounted an immune response, and what the tests are measuring is mostly fragments of viral genetic material that don't come from active virus. The modest benefits and symptoms one week after treatment ended is hardly cause for celebration, says an epidemiologist at the Federal University of Bahia. The results of this study do not justify prescription of this drug for treatment of COVID-19. It's noteworthy that when Bolsonaro did get sick with COVID-19. He posed for photographs of himself continuing to take hydroxychloroquine. friend done. 
analyzing the Amazon A big part of my plan That was all of my plan From New Orleans, this is Le Show. By the way, the first song on today's broadcast, I Can't Drive Anymore. And this is the last time you'll hear this, is from my new album, The Many Moods of Donald Trump, which came out this weekend. But you know that. You listen to all the shows. And now, ladies and gentlemen... Something strange is happening in the pristine forests of the Amazon... Biodiversity is declining even in areas of the world's largest rainforest protected from human development. That's so they think. For the past 50 years, conservationists have focused on limiting deforestation in the Amazon to protect its 16,000 species, including one in five of all buried species in the world. Conventional wisdom suggested that preserving forests preserve the species that rely on them for food and shelter. The more pristine the forest, the better it was assumed to support biodiversity. But a study published Monday by researchers at LSU, yes, it's a university, found that birds that forage on the forest floor are disappearing. What we think is happening is an erosion of biodiversity, of loss of some of the richness in a place where we would hope biodiversity can be maintained, said uh, Professor Philip Stoffer of the LSU School of Renewable Natural Resources. He's the leader of the study, lead author, who was published in Ecology Letters. Not sent home to mom. In recent decades, global warming has produced historical droughts in the Amazon that withered crops and increased forest fires. These disasters led to changes within otherwise untouched forest areas. That increased woody debris on the forest floor. Wasn't he the football coach at LSU, woody debris? No, Uh, that's according to the study. Increasing woody debris, I say again. Since 1991, Stauffer has conducted field research in the Amazon. His years of experience led him to notice that around 2008, it became more difficult to find certain buried species that were plentiful when he started his research. And he didn't kill them, so he says. To test his theory, he began gathering new data comparable to samples from the 1980s, so he and other researchers could analyze changes in species over the intervening 35 years. Over a period of eight years, he and his students surveyed 21 forest sites that spanned approximately the same area as the area as the historical data from the 1980s. They utilized a line of nets, opened at 6 a.m., closed at 2 p.m. during the traditional dry season to capture the birds, which were identified, processed, and released on site. 
Certain species, including raptors and kingfishers, hey, kingfisher, were excluded from their data to eliminate canopy species that almost never get down to ground level. 11% of the species were less common in modern forests. An additional 10% were more common. So Stauffer identified two trends. Abundance of many species has declined, and bird abundance is more divergent now. It's a shifting baseline previously undetected. If animal patterns are changing in the absence of landscape change, he says, it signals a sobering warning that simply preserving forests will not maintain rainforest biodiversity. Patterns, unquote, patterns within the declines also emerged. Birds that forage for insects mm -mm, near or on the forest floor declined the most, including the wind-banded ant bird. That fellow searches under leaves and other debris to find its prey. Also declining was the musician wren, a shy bird with one of the most iconic voices in the Amazon. In contrast, the white-plumed ant bird, which eats a variety of insects churned up by ant swarms, remains plentiful. Researchers theorize its foraging strategy makes it more resilient. Birds that eat fruit have also increased their numbers, suggesting omnivorous birds with flexible diets are better equipped to evolve with climate change. The idea that things are changing even in the most pristine parts of our planet, yet we don't even know it, illustrates the need for us to pay more attention, Stauffer said. Or less. That's Images of this year's most devastating wildfires across the West have shown forests of ponderosa, spruce, and lodgepole engulfed in flames. Fires on grasslands and rangelands may not capture as much coverage, but can be just as landscape-altering as forest fires. Plus, they can spread more rapidly and in some cases cause more damage than fires in forested areas. This report on grassland fires from Wyoming Public Radio across the West, the increasing prevalence of invasive plants and the growing influence of climate change is changing the relationship between vast rangelands, drought, and wildfire. Three characteristics that make plants invasive, said a specialist at the University of Wyoming. They have it. Uh, yes, they do. To start... We think of something coming from another country, crossing an ocean or a large boundary. They're not from here. Secondly, their foreign nature allows them to spread easily, overwhelming native plants, causing negative impacts of the area. Those impacts come to ranchers, rangeland. Oh, sorry, ranchers on rangeland, where these invaders can take over areas meant for grazing. Meant for grazing. They're used for grazing now. That means less vegetation for livestock and wildlife to eat, making the land harder to use. That might saving the land. Lastly, like all strong enemies, the invasive plants are hard to eradicate. In most cases, said the uh, researcher, the reason they're so successful is that they aren't particularly good to eat. I guess that's why humans have proliferated. News of Dominion, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And through it all, through all the uh, news about the uh, pandemic we talked about earlier, the president is campaigning on the idea that we're rounding the curve and heading for home. Tired of sheltering, sure you are. In a room you want to be in your car. Scientists say, sure they do. Trouble is, scientists don't know you. 
Let's get back out, America. Give the market the juice that it needs. No need for doubt, America. Let's see what happens, see where it leads. With old games, blame TV. Worried and scared, don't blame me. Can't blame anyone, sure you can. Blame Italy, China, blame Japan. <laughs> Let's get back out, America. If it helps your president, that's no crime. We won this bout, America. If not, we just do all this one more time. Where's your bailout? I don't know. Taco Cabana got their dough. What's wrong with the dams? I'd ask that too. Unlike me, they don't care about you. Let's get back out, America. Florida and Georgia have the cure. I got to shout, America. It might not be presidential, but my one credential is I'm so now, the apologies of the week. It's about time. We're so sorry. And space. British Labour leader, British Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer, actually Sir Keir Starmer to you, and me, this week apologized for his party's failure to deal with anti-Semitism in its ranks after an official report said it was responsible for unlawful harassment and discrimination. That's a report from the Equality and Human Rights Commission. It found serious failings in the party's leadership in addressing anti-Semitism and inadequate process for handling complaints after launching an investigation into allegations made under the previous leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn's tenure was marred by persistent complaints of anti-Semitism in the party and criticism of his response. Starmer, the new leader, said he accepted the report in full would implement all its recommendations and suspended Corbyn for his response to the report. An Atlanta sushi restaurant owner has apologized after a black couple said they were discriminated against when they were escorted out of the establishment for a dress code violation. We still got those, huh? Kaylin Colbert, an attorney, said she and her husband made a reservation for a birthday dinner at Umi. When they arrived, staff refused to serve them because her husband was wearing sneakers. At some point, Colbert or Colbert starts recording the discussion in a video. Sorry, now on Instagram sorry, for your viewing pleasure. Shared by nationally recognized civil rights lawyer Ben Crump on Twitter. Her husband, who is wearing white Nike Air Force One shoes points out to the staff that another patron sitting at the bar is wearing Adidas sneakers. This is pure racism. She has an Adidas, her husband says in the video. I get where you're coming from, a staff member responds. Please, we're all minorities here, unquote. Colbert said the couple had been there multiple times during the pandemic. Her husband had worn gym shoes without incident. They move outside where restaurant owner Farshid Arshid, I said Farshid Arshid, gets involved as he's leading for the day. He's going to go to jail tonight, Arshid says. I'm not letting Air Force Ones in my establishment. Arshid 
who's Iranian, told USA Today he regrets how the situation was handled, but it was an operational, not racial, shortcoming. We absolutely mishandled it. I'm ashamed of that. We should have managed the situation much better. He said when the reservation is made, the dress code is communicated at least three ways. Arshad said he called Colbert 30 minutes after the incident to apologize them and invite them back to the restaurant. Colbert said in an Instagram post, she has not accepted his apology, but she likes his shoes. Dateline Dallas, WFAA sportscaster Dale Hansen, Sweet Night's sports anchor for Dallas's ABC affiliate, 72 years old, earned a Peabody Award, I haven't done that. And the Radio Television Digital News Foundation's Lifetime Achievement Award. He gained national attention and praise when he stuck up for openly gay NFL player Michael Sam and again in 2017 when he defended Colin Kaepernick. But he made an offensive joke about the gender pay gap, supposedly, during an FAA broadcast a couple weeks ago. Quote, if you have a woman like a co-anchor or a news director or a station manager, I think it's a fantastic day because they work cheaper. So that leaves more money for you and me, he said on the air, talking with the meteorologist. Afterward, Twitter users called out his attempt at humor. And he responded, I made a joke on the air, a horrible joke that has offended and hurt a lot of people. For that, I apologize. It was a mistake. It was stupid. It was my mistake. It was my stupidity. I'm not trying to defend what I said. My joke was not meant against women. It was a joke about how ridiculous it is that so many women still have to fight for equal pay. I'm old enough to know it's a problem women have been dealing with since the turn of the century, not this one, the last one. No, that's his, his, his apology went on, but you get the idea. He's sorry. It turns out apologizing for scoring touchdowns is all the rage in college football these days, according to CBS Sports. Ohio State coach Ryan Day felt the need to apologize to Nebraska's Scott Frost for touchdown Ohio State scored against Nebraska. According to Day, he owed Frost an apology for allowing his offense to score a touchdown late in its 52-17 walloping of the Cornhuskers. Apologizing for piling it on, I guess. Dayline Raleigh, North Carolina. A Raleigh pastor has been ticketed for assault after investigators say he urinated on a sleeping passenger during a Delta flight. This opens up our sequence of apologies by clergy. Police identified the pastor as Daniel Chalmers, pastor of Love Winds Ministry in Raleigh. Investigators say the incident happened on a Las Vegas to Detroit flight on Delta earlier this month. A woman was asleep on the red-eye flight sitting next to Chalmers. Chalmers! When she woke up, she saw him relieving himself on her. An off-duty officer on the flight detained Chalmers. Documents show the pastor admitted to having a couple of drinks, followed by an Ambien. He released a statement to local Fox News station in Detroit saying that was the first time he had ever taken Ambien. Didn't mention the drinks. He also apologized to the passenger. I want to please ask everyone for their forgiveness in this. I never intended or wanted for this to happen. He said he would release a statement clarifying what happened on his website soon. But not yet. I think we know what happened. Blaming the Ambien. Another clergy apology. A Brooks pastor. This would be uh, near Bangor in Maine. 
apologized to some members of the community on Sunday in the wake of a coronavirus outbreak connected with Brooks Pentecostal Church and Lighthouse Christian Academy. Pastor Matthew Shaw addressed the situation in a video on the church's Facebook page. Yes, saying the church regrets what has happened and is asking for forgiveness. Quote, we apologize that the sickness came to our church and we apologize for the consequences that maybe the community is feeling, he said. He went on to say he's only apologizing to people who stand in solidarity with the church, not to those who have used this scenario to further their, quote, agenda, unquote. As of Monday this week, there have been at least 60 coronavirus cases linked to the outbreak in Waldo County. Don't ask where it is. According to the Maine Center for Disease Control, the outbreak began after more than 100 people gathered for an indoor fellowship service at Brooks Pentecostal Church earlier this month. Too much fellowshipping. Polish President Andrzej Duda says he feels well despite testing positive for the coronavirus. He apologized this week to everyone who must quarantine because they had contact with him. He said he's experiencing no symptoms, but unfortunately the test result is absolutely unambiguous. I would like to apologize to all those who were exposed to quarantine procedures because of meeting me in recent days. If I had had any symptoms, please believe me, all meetings would have been canceled. Coronavirus is raging in Poland as well as much of the rest of Europe. At the end of a report on Friday night, Fox News special report with Brett Baer made a bizarre choice of bumper music, according to Mediate, playing Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire as the show segued out of a news brief about a raging Colorado, uh, yes, Colorado wildfire. Host Brett Baer said they were uh, sorry. The song chosen for the bump music was a terrible mistake and a complete oversight. We regret the insensitive error and hope and pray the missing are found unharmed and the fires there are contained. And the containers there are fired. No, he didn't. I I don't have to. Dateline, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The borough council, through Mayor Tim Scott, issued a statement apologizing for the removal in 1972 of tombstones of African Americans buried in the Lincoln Cemetery. In a statement... The uh, mayor announced his plan to introduce a resolution day after Election Day to formalize the apology and to reinforce the need for healing as work continues at the site to honor the dead. The burial ground that became the Lincoln Cemetery was deeded to the black people of Carlisle by the Penn family when the town was laid out. The original provisions called for it to be equal in size to the five-acre old graveyard on South Street where white people were buried. Instead, Lincoln, instead, Lincoln Cemetery ended up measuring 100 by 300 feet. Well, because white people are bigger. A Broward assistant public defender, this is in Florida, has been asked to apologize after he yelled out, F you, Linder, to a prosecutor during a recorded Zoom court hearing this week. The outburst shocked lawyers and observers during the routine morning calendar held monthly and remotely during the pandemic. The lawyer, Dale Miller, said he thought his microphone was off. His boss, public defender Howard Finkelstein, said, of course, Miller should apologize. While his colorful language may lack in professionalism, it is not an uncommon off-the-record exchange between lawyers in a heated moment, but when uttered over the microphone and into the public domain, it requires a public apology. The Broward prosecutor, Eric Linder, was asking for a $5,000 bail bond for a man accused of stealing money from a restaurant. Quote, obviously not your run-of-the-mill grand theft case, Linder said. Suddenly, Miller 
yelled out, Oh, F you, Linder. Who cares what... Dot, dot, dot. Yelling, shocked observers. Linder and the judge. The judge said, Excuse me, but your microphone is on. If we have one more outburst like that, we're going to be having a very serious conversation with your supervisor. Miller paused, didn't quite say he was sorry to Linder. I apologize that my microphone was on, Judge, Miller replied. Dateline Palm Beach, Florida, former school principal whose controversial Holocaust comments prompted national outrage. I didn't participate in that. I didn't know it was happening. Apologized and asked to keep his job in a Florida public school system as a new vote on his fate nears. Former high school principal William Latson said in an online video, he is not a Holocaust denier. He's denying he's a denier and is sorry that my com- comments caused people to think that. He appealed to school board members to let him keep his job. Don't fire the denier, I guess, is his position. When I wrote to a parent that as an employee of Palm Beach County Schools, I could not state that the Holocaust was a historical fact, I was wrong, said Latson. I apologize to the county community, the school board, the school administration, the parents, students, teachers of Palm Beach County, the Jewish community, and everyone offended or hurt by my mistake, unquote. That's his first personal expression of remorse since his comments were revealed July 2019. Comes the school board members grappling with the outrage, prepare for a new vote this week. None of the school board members responded to requests for comment after he apologized. He was fired a year ago after uh, that message to a parent. He appealed his termination. A administrative law judge ruled in August the board had gone too far in firing him. They voted to reinstate him, and that brought an onslaught of angry phone calls and emails. So I guess that story will continue. Dateline Seattle with apologies and saying he was praying for healing. Radio host, host Dory Monson was back on the air this week. He disappeared from Cairo Radio for two and a half weeks after a tweet described as transphobic, according to the Seattle Times. He said that his tweet during a gubernatorial debate didn't hit the mark. He remained suspended from hosting the Seattle Seahawks NFL pregame and postgame shows. He began his show this week with a greeting to listeners before basically saying, they said I was making fun of transgender people, which honest to goodness I wasn't. Didn't even cross my mind then, but people called me transphobic. The Seattle Times called me transphobic. Websites called me transphobic. The truth is I couldn't care less if an adult wants to adopt a different gender. At the time, I was commenting on our governor and his changing official state documents. As a Christian, I pay for, pray for forgiveness if my words caused you pain. On top of that, I'm praying that each of us uses diversity of thought to get to a greater strength. Praying radio host. A Qatar... Qatar apologized Wednesday after authorities forcibly examined female passengers from a Qatar Airlines flight to Sydney to try to identify who might have given birth to an abandoned newborn baby. Australia condemned the search as Qatar said it had begun an investigation into the treatment of the women who were taking the Qatar Airlines flight. It is uh, illegal to have a child outside of marriage in that country. And Delta Airlines was forced to apologize to a hearing-impaired passenger who was thrown off a flight in a misunderstanding over wearing a face mask. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, as we bid farewell to Rocktober, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same radio stations and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it would be just like wearing a mask when you go out for Halloween. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans, as well as Garrett Pittman, same place, for help with today's program. The email address for this program, yes, you can talk to me via email. If you consider that talking. As well as the playlist of the music heard here on and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshearer.com. And me, thanks for asking. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.